Hey everyone, you are listening to the Covenant Grace Church podcast. We are a gospel-centered community on mission with Jesus in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. Enjoy the message. All right, so as we um, move to the Word of God, um, just to remind you that we are preaching in a series called Lessons from a Messy Church, Lessons from a Messy Church, and, uh, and largely because in the Corinthian church, Uh, we find that uh, although the church was in Corinth, the city of Corinth, this ancient Greek uh, landscape, too much of Corinth was still in the church. And uh, and so the church was planted by the Apostle Paul, and he had spent time with the church, but upon his departure, uh, a few years have gone by, and things have got a little loose and a little messy. And so we've been preaching verse by verse through this book, and we're now in chapter 10. So by way of reminder, Paul ends on a rather interesting note. He ends chapter 9 with a conversation about his own role and his own self-discipline. But he frames it in such a way that it applies to the whole Christian life, to all Christians. So he kind of does some introspection and he says, I'm now disciplining myself so that I don't disqualify myself. Let's have a look at that verse, verse 27 of chapter 9. He says it this way. He says, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul is concerned about his own witness, his own testimony. He's concerned that he... He doesn't want to be a hypocrite. You know, I'm preaching to other people, but I'm not preaching to my own heart. He's concerned that his body, his flesh, has still got unruly aspects, as all Christians do. We all have this flesh nature that uh, although we are saved, we still have the presence of sin that we war with. And so Paul's actually framing for us here something that is really critical to the Christian life. And that is, you can be a Christian, and you can still struggle with sin. And so what posture should we take? And the posture that Paul wants to take is that of discipline. I'm I'm engaged in a battle with my flesh. I'm engaged in 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 a war with the flesh. And the danger is, right at the end, he says, lest I should be disqualified. And I think the concern here is that Paul doesn't want to just be a superficial Christian, or or he doesn't just want to fake it. He wants to be the real deal. And he wants this for the Corinthians too. And I think the reason he highlights this is because some of this is now becoming evident in the Corinthian church, that maybe not all of them are Christians. Uh, Maybe some of them are Christians with real struggles, and that's okay. That that's that's okay. We can deal with that. You know, you can be a true Christian and have true struggles. We know that to be true. But I think here's his point. He he wants us to posture ourselves in such a way that we never ever presume upon the grace of God. That we think we can ignore sin, that we think we can indulge in it even, because once upon a time I gave my life to the Lord. What Paul presents us here is that the Christian life is an ongoing struggle with sin. The Christian never makes peace with sin. The Christian never makes peace. It's called sanctification. 
And he is aware that the Christian life is actually defined by ongoing repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. It's not that you once repent. You know, when you first gave your life to the Lord, I, I once repented of my sin and then I believed. What Paul wants to argue for here is that there is an ongoing reality to repentance and faith. Now, he moves from chapter 9 into chapter 10 and he's going to develop this theme by giving a sober warning, by using the, the history of Israel as our prime example of what he's arguing for. And so one of the key verses in chapter 10, which is going to be focusing on the first 13 verses, but one of the key verses is verse 10. Look at what he says here. He says, now these things happened, and as you're going to see, he's talking about the nation of Israel. These things happened to the nation of Israel, happened to them, look at what he says, as an example. An example, but they were written down for our instruction. So in other words, Corinthians and covenant grace, take note. This was written for us. And what was written, we're going to see what was written was that although Israel experienced privileged blessings, and although Israel experienced the grace of God, the text is going to tell us they eventually fell away. They fell away. They came under God's judgment. They indulged in sin. They fell into the trap of sin. And here's Paul's final conclusion. He says, if it can happen to them, it can happen to us. Now, before we get the wrong idea, because this idea of falling away is, uh, is fairly controversial in theological circles, uh, this idea of being disqualified, am I saying, and is Paul saying that you can lose your salvation? Is that, is that what the Bible teaches? And I want to just say an emphatic no. The Bible doesn't teach that you can lose your salvation. And that kind of reminds me of that, that slogan that we often hear, you know, that slogan, once saved, always saved. There is some truth in that, but it's a poor slogan, and the reason it's a poor slogan is because it doesn't deal with the biblical nuance that is fairly complicated. And so a better way to frame the theological truth that, that God doesn't lose his kids, let's just put it that way. I mean, what father who adopts his children into his family would lose them. He wouldn't be a sovereign father. He wouldn't be a loving father. And so theologically, we fall into the camp here at Covenant Grace with, with all of church history that salvation, true salvation, is secure in Christ. So what is this talk of falling away then? What is this talk of warning? And I think a better way to frame it is that the way in which we are safe, the way in which we are secure in Christ is through perseverance, through perseverance, not through neglect. It is through perseverance that we are saved. Or to put it this way, if saved, always saved. Rather than once upon a time, and then I live my life however I want, and then I'm safe. No, no, that's not how it works. How it works is that we make commitments on a daily basis. We live in the grace of God every single day. 
And so he's going to develop an argument here by looking at the life of Israel, how they failed to persevere, how they failed to take the grace of God and actually apply it to their lives and persevere in faith. So the key passage, again in verse 12, we read this. Let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. It's a warning about being presumptuous, about sitting back and going, well, I gave my life to the Lord when I was 16. That was my situation. Whatever yours was, you know, I gave my life to the Lord then. And then you think, well, okay, I can live my life however I please, and one day I'll be saved. And the Bible wants to say to us, that's not how it works. You've got a rude awakening coming. So let's consider Israel's story, which is what Paul's going to do from verses 1 through to 13. We're going to look at the example, the exhortation, and the encouragement. So look at verse 1 from chapter 10. It says, For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Paul begins by explaining these incredible privileges. This amazing grace that came to the nation of Israel. They were captives in Egypt. And the grace of God led them out. We know, we know the miraculous story of the Exodus. And they had done nothing to deserve this. It was all of grace. And Paul wants to carefully draw out some parallels here between their experience and the Corinthian experience and ours too. By the way, when I speak of the Corinthian experience, it includes us because they were in the new covenant and so are we. And so what Paul is doing here is he's drawing out parallels regarding the ancient people of Israel and the church. And he wants to show that, that there is a link between the blessings that came to the people of God in the Old Testament, and there is a link between what they experienced and what we experienced, the New Testament church. The very fact that the Old Testament nation of Israel were called out of Egypt, the word being called out is ekklesia, means called out ones. It's the same word we find in the Greek New Testament for church. And that alone is a sign that there is this continuity between the people of God in the old and the people of God in the new. There are similar experiences and there's similar realities. And Paul wants to press this home. He does that like this. Notice he says, our fathers. Not just their fathers. There was the, the fathers of the, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses in particular in this situation, are not just the fathers to the people of Israel, the, the, the believers in Israel. No, no. There's a continuity. Why? Because there's only one way to be saved, and that is through Christ. And so Paul's saying, well, yeah, they're our fathers. Our fathers, he says, we're all under the cloud. There is one body of believers, both in old and new. And then he says this, he says they also had a kind of baptism like we do in the New Testament. They also had a, a kind of baptism. You notice he says they were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And he's saying it was, it was a type. The word example here is actually the word type. And so their rescue through the Red Sea, Paul develops this idea that it was a type of baptism. 
And it's finally fulfilled in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, where we see John, John the Baptist, and Jesus being baptized, and then the commission to the church, go and baptize. So there's a link again. And then in verses 3 and 4, he develops the link even further, and he says, they, the people of God, ate spiritual food and drank spiritual drink. And he's referencing Exodus 16, where Moses struck the rock. We remember that the people were grumbling because the waters were bitter. And Moses struck the rock and caused water to flow from the rock. And it quenched their thirst. And no doubt he's talking about the manna in the wilderness. And, and it's interesting how Paul highlights these two things. Baptism and food and drink. What does that remind you of? The Lord's Supper. And no doubt there is a sacramental parallel here between the believers of the Old Testament and the believers in the New Testament. They had a kind of baptism. They had a kind of spiritual meal, just like we have a baptism and a spiritual meal. And all of these things, he wants to say, point to Christ. They have zero meaning outside of Christ. This is his point. His point is they struck the rock, and then he says, then the rock was Christ. We know it's Christ because we have the revelation of Christ in the flesh, but they didn't have Christ in the flesh, so they had Christ in types and shadows. And Paul says, and Christ was right there with them as they struck the rock and living water flowed, and if you come under the life and ministry of Jesus, you too can have living water. And so there's this wonderful parallel that he presents between the Old Covenant and the New Testament, the New Covenant. But then comes the shocker in verses 5 and 6. Have a look in your Bibles at this. How how did Israel respond to this amazing grace? What was the response of the Israelites to this privileged grace that they had received? Look at verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. And then he says, now these things took place as examples for us. That we might not desire evil as they did. It's quite shocking, isn't it? With most of them, it says, God was not pleased. And the answer is yes. Yes, everybody but two. Everybody but Joshua and Caleb, remember? Most of them failed to enter the promised land. They died in the wilderness in unbelief. It's incredible. They they had a kind of baptism. They, They had a kind of communion. They had the grace of God. They had the parting of the Red Sea. Talk about evidence. I laugh sometimes today with with unbelievers and and maybe atheists. They're like, oh, if I see a miracle, then I will believe. No, you don't know your own heart. We've got evidence of whole nations seeing a parting of a Red Sea and, 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 and Egyptians being drowned in that same sea and, and, and manna and quail and, and, and just the miracle after miracle after miracle. And, and how do they respond? In unbelief. In unbelief. They die in the wilderness. They, they, they choose rather a life of worshiping created things rather than the Creator. And we're going, to see, we're going to see what they did. But firstly, the example, therefore, that Paul wants to present to us here is the example is an example to warn us. 
to warn the Corinthians and to warn Christians throughout all generations that you need more than just outward participation. You need more than just the religious experience. You need more than just church attendance. You need more than just a a baptism or, or a taking of the communion cup because all of that stuff is meaningless if it doesn't connect you to Christ. It can connect you to the church. It can connect you to a community. It can connect you to new friends and new people and you can have all these wonderful experiences. But if it doesn't connect you to the rock, it's meaningless. And, and, and sometimes in, in theological circles, we talk about the visible church, you know, what we see with physical eyes, the visible church, and the invisible church. And that's really what we see here. You can participate, you can t- participate all your life in the visible church. You can worship, you can take communion, but you may never actually be truly part of the invisible church. Because if all of these things don't connect you in your heart of hearts to Christ Jesus, they are no blessing to you at all. And so he goes from the example, which is an example to warn us, to an exhortation. Let's read on from verse 7. Well, we'll get there. But these exhortations that we're going to see are not complicated. They really are not complicated. The first one is the sin of idolatry in verse 7. So this is what they did. And he, and he brings this to us. He says, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, now he quotes from Exodus. He says, they sat down, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the reference here is from Exodus 32 where the situation is Moses is up on the mountain, Mount Sinai, and while he's there, he's delayed in coming, and the people get irritated. They're like, well, we, he's gone. We've lost our leader. Uh, let's just appoint Aaron to be our leader. And so they stop listening to Moses because Moses is not around, and they start uh, appointing Aaron as a leader, and they say to Aaron, hey, let's worship how we used to back in Egypt. Let's build for ourselves an idol. Some commentators think that actually what they were trying to do is not worship foreign gods, but actually worship the true and living God, but in the form of an idol. But either way, it's idolatry because they were commanded not to do that. And so Aaron gathers the the jewels and and the gold from the people and they build for themselves a golden calf. Uh, It's just unthinkable after the privileged position they found themselves in. And Paul's point is the Corinthians, before you, before you get a little smug and think of, of the Israelites and how poorly they, they're shaped up here, he says, you too have been involved in idolatry. In the pagan temples, we've spoken about this earlier, about the pagan temples in Corinth, you know, the temple of Aphrodite and the temple of, of Apollos and, and all of these pagan rituals, and they were getting involved. But let's just think about our own lives. Even here today in the 21st century, we too might not be worshipping literal statues and literal idols, but we have the bigger problem of the idol of self. I think it's one of the great idols of our age. This individualism, this kind of self-promotion, this self-defining reality. We can be whatever we want to be. The idol of self. And Paul says it straight, do not be idolaters. And so in the ancient world, it would have been 
pagan practices, but I think in our age, it's the danger of self-worship. He goes on. So that's the first exhortation. Don't, don't fall into, into the trap of self-worship, church. Then he mentions sexual immorality, which he's been going at for a few chapters already. But he reminds us, he goes on in verse 8. So the first one is idolatry, then it's sexual immorality. Verse 8, we must not indulge, he says, in sexual immorality as some of them did. And look what happened. And 23,000 fell, died in a single day. We're not talking here about Egyptians. We're talking here about Israelites. God-fearing, God-rescued Israelites who fell under the judgment of God because they presumed upon His grace. They presumed upon His grace. They were like, hey, we've been rescued. We're, in the, we're, we're on our way to the promised land. And so let's, you know, let's just indulge our sin. And, and, and Paul's referencing Numbers 25, if you want to read it, where, where they, they, the, the people of Israel actually went and took the daughters of Moab. And in acts of pagan worship to the God of Baal, they committed these sinful acts and God slayed them. 23,000 in a single day dropped dead. The third thing is putting the Lord to the test. We read on in verse 9 and 10. He goes on, he says, we must not put Christ to the test. Notice that he's talking about Israel and he calls it Christ. They put God to the test, but Paul sees no distinction here. He sees the, the, the beauty of the Trinity already in, at work and in play. We must not put Christ to the test. Look what he says, as some of them did. In other words, Paul's very clear that, that it was Christ who led them out through the Red Sea, and it was Christ who was the rock who was struck, and it was Christ who they put to the test. And he says, and they were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Again, this is a reference to Numbers 21, where the people of God were complaining about the provision of food. God miraculously provides food, and you moan about it. God brings them into the wilderness, and He miraculously cares for them, and all they have to say is, you know what, we were better off in Egypt. And then the snakes come, and they die. And so the... The point here, church, is not difficult to grasp, I think. There is no hidden meaning. There's no theological mystery here. The point is stay away from sin. Don't sit back on your laurels. Don't presume upon the grace of God. And he says it this way in verse 11 and 12. He says, now these things happened to them as an example, but they are written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands beware lest he fall. Don't make the same mistakes, he's saying. You and I, we can live under the same blessings. We can live under the same privileges. We can experience the same grace of God externally and not be changed internally. You see, the problem with the Israelites was although they were circumcised in the flesh, they were not circumcised in their hearts. And it's only a circumcision of the heart that truly saves. You can have the, the, the blood of Abraham. You can even have the flesh of Abraham. But if you don't have the faith of Abraham, there is no salvation. And so you can have the blessings of belonging to the privileged nation of Israel. But without Christ, there is no blessing. 
And Paul's point to the Corinthians is, you think you can carry on the way you want to carry on? You think you can worship in the pagan temples in Corinth? You think that you can indulge in sexual immorality? You think you can just live your life as you please, sexually indulge, sinfully indulge, and that God will save you? Think again. Where's the fruit? Where's the works that are evidence of faith? And then he ends with the encouragement in verse 13. And I, and I think that here we see Paul's pastoral heart, because I think he's been actually nailing these guys. And we see his pastoral heart come through here in verse 13. He says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. What a precious promise. What a precious promise for, for us who will continue to fight the good fight. Don't let anyone tell you that the Christian life is easy. It's a struggle. But it's a good fight. And in many ways, it's an unfair fight. You know why it's an unfair fight? Why? Because of what we read here. Notice what he says. No temptation will overtake you that is not common to man. And, and he's pointing out that sometimes we make excuses. And, and Satan loves to do this. Don't, don't fall for the lie. Here's the lie. Don't fall for the lie that your temptations or your struggle is unique. That you're a special case. <laughs> Satan loves to, to, to fool us into this, that, that what you're going through is just very unique. You're a special case because if you begin to believe that and you begin to play it through your mind, you will think, well, the usual remedies don't work for me. You know, the, the usual ways we fight sin, they don't work for me because this is a very unique case, Lord. There's, re there's really no help for me because I'm a special case. And Paul says, no, no temptation has overtaken you. That is Common to man. It's, 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 it's common to everyone. You're not a special case. So get that out of your head. The next thing he says is God is faithful. This is why this is an unfair fight because we've got God on our, our side. We've got God on our team. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. So the first thing you need to put in place is that I'm going to fight. I'm not going to just sit I'm going to fight my sin. I'm going to fight temptation. I'm not going to be like the Israelites. Did I turn this off? No. Maybe it's the battery. They're all good. I'm going to fight. I'm not going to come up with excuses. I'm not going to presume upon grace. And I'm going to rest my hope, not in my ability to fight, but in what? In God is faithful. I'm going to trust in the faithfulness of God. Church, Christian, Corinthian, if you were listening, all types. Christians are not powerless in the face of temptation. It's another trap. It's another trap when we begin to think, well, I'm stuck. I'm stuck in a bad pattern. I'm stuck in a bad way. I can't get out. Yes, you can. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. You can get out. 
There is something you can do. You can fight. You can struggle. He will give you the ability to escape. There will come grace. Here's how it works. If you sit back and you go, okay, where's the grace? You won't find it. But when you pursue, when you engage, when you take up arms for the fight, when you click off, when you close that web page that you shouldn't be looking at, when you, when you struggle, when you fight, when you push back, when you resist, when you say no, grace will be there because God is faithful. See, we've got to do something. We can't presume upon the privileges like the people of Israel did. We have to act. Confess your sins. Speak to a trusted brother or sister. Get into the fight. Those who persevere to the end shall be saved. Is there a blessed assurance in the Christian life? Yes, there is. God will glorify all those he justifies. God doesn't lose his children. But his children are defined by being up for the fight. That's how we know who the children of God are. The children of God are the ones who produce fruit, and part of the fruit giving is up for the fight against the flesh, the world, and the devil. Finally, I just want to say something about God is faithful. I love the way Paul roots this in Christ himself. And we see the faithfulness of God in the life of Christ, in the giving of Christ. Where do we look for this long road? It's a long road. It's a narrow road. It's a bumpy road. Where do we look? We look to Christ, who himself was tempted in every way the Bible tells us as we are. You want to know how how is God faithful? How how is God faithful? I'm in the struggle. How is God faithful? Look to Christ. Look to Christ and see the faithfulness of God. Look to Christ and see how he sends a substitute in our flesh, just like us, who was tempted in every way as we are, yet was without sin. How? Because he was the Son of God? No, because he was the Son of Man too at the same time, fully man, fully God. And he did that for us so that... All the resources, here's the good news, all the resources we need to make it to the end are in Christ. And as we look to him, he knows, he knows what we are going through. So look to Christ and receive from him grace to sustain us for the long road. Amen.